We're now going to read from God's Word, so hopefully you have your Bible with you. We're continuing on in the Gospel of John, as we were saying before. And so we're picking up for John chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 43 and go through to about halfway through chapter 5. So this is John chapter 5, uh, John chapter 4, sorry, beginning at verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see the signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, mm, Yesterday. At one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone just goes down before me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that this was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. Wait, could I ask to preach at the youth service? Oh no, it was definitely meant to be me. Who do my youth leaders call when this happens to them?
Oh, come on, Riley. Let's try Lockie. Oh, you pick up for everyone else, Lockie. What's going on here? Uh, guess I only have one option left. This evening, we've read the accounts of Jesus performing two different miracles. So, we're going to tackle this passage in two different halves. And I think it's a really fair summary of the first half of our passage to say that Jesus heals in response to faith. It's a bit weird that the J on that slide is a different colour. I wonder whether it's some type of code, and whether the first person to post the code on Slido will get a free pizza. Anyway, our first point tonight is that Jesus heals in response to faith. However, the author is careful to set this up as an incredible surprise. Not that Jesus could heal, but there, that there was someone in Galilee who had faith. Our passage begins with Jesus travelling from Samaria, where he was located in last week's passage, to Galilee, his home region. And in verse 44, we see that Jesus had low expectations in returning to his home region. Because a prophet has no honour in his own country. People find it hard to take advice and believe the testimony of someone they have known their whole life. In the Gospel of Luke, we see another story of Jesus in Galilee, and the people exclaim, Isn't that Joseph's son? The son of the carpenter? They can't believe the teachings of Jesus when they know his incredibly humble beginnings. Rather surprisingly then, this time when Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast in chapters 2 and 3, because they'd also been there, and thus the miracles he did were still fresh in their memories. But Jesus knew that this faith was not genuine. It is in this context that Jesus is approached by a royal official, who despite his money and his status, could not do anything to prevent the death of his son. This man is desperate, having travelled to Cana from Capernaum, a day's journey on foot, to find someone, anyone, who could help his son. When he hears that Jesus is in town, he goes to him and begs him to come and heal his son. This leads to our second point, because while Jesus will heal in response to the man's faith, he first has to prompt that very faith. In verse 48, we see Jesus challenging the royal official, but because the you is plural, we can also associate this rebuke with the people of Galilee as a whole. And he says, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. The problem Jesus had been facing is that many were entranced by his ability to perform amazing signs and wonders, but failed to see that every sign and wonder pointed to Jesus. This isn't to say that signs and wonders are a bad thing. The author of this very gospel uses them as his evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. However, this involves looking past the amazing miracles, something these people seemed unable to do. I appreciate the audacity of the royal official here. He is not in the emotional headspace to argue his case theologically. 
Instead, all he could do was beg. This pleading shows that the man truly believed Jesus could do something about his son. I don't know whether this was his moment of faith, but when Jesus declares that his son will be healed, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. The royal official rose to the occasion. He believed without seeing a sign. This sort of faith is found in a few places in the gospel, and is explicitly praised by Jesus at the very end of the gospel, when he says in John 20, 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This point also points to a broader theological point, because it is God who prompts faith in all of us who believe. Both from Romans 12 and Ephesians 2, we see that it is God who gives us faith to believe, which means his spirit is at work in our hearts well before we accept the gospel. Now, in this current season of life, it can be really, really hard to see what God's plan is. But God is enacting that plan. And part of that is placing faith within each of you who believe. This should also bring great encouragement in evangelism. Because it is not us who does the work, or even the person we are speaking to, but it is God who prompts, gives, and grows our faith. Now, the conclusion to this narrative is significant. We're led to believe that the royal official was making his way home, believing the words of Jesus. And while he was still on the way, his servants meet him with the news that his son is alive and well. No doubt he was greatly relieved and overjoyed. But there was something else he wanted to know. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday, at the seventh hour. This was the exact same time Jesus had said that the boy would be healed, and thus the royal official's faith, which he had exercised without seeing a sign, was now confirmed. His son's life had been saved by the word of Jesus alone. But the story does not end there. The author adds, So he, in all his household, believed. His faith in the promise of Jesus led the man and his whole household to believe in Jesus. This man and his household are examples of those who exercised true faith in Jesus. Examples the author wants his readers to emulate. So how should we emulate this man? The royal official trusted Jesus' promise before there was any proof that it had happened. That is similar to what we're meant to do. We're meant to trust God's promises to us, us, even when they haven't come to full fruition yet. Now, we actually just covered Hebrews 11 in home groups the other week. And after reading a simply enormous list of faithful people, this is what we read in verse 40. These were all commended. For their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. One of the reasons these men and women are commended is because the promises of God were not yet fully realised for them, and yet they all trusted the promises anyway. This is something that you and I need to do. And I'm wondering if everyone watching tonight, youth and non-youth, could post in our Slido chat right now, what are some of the promises of God that we should trust in? I'll give you a moment to type them in now.
Thank you for doing that. These are the promises we should be having faith in, even if we cannot yet see how they will be fulfilled. Now, moving forward with this sermon, I believe that there is a third point we could draw out from the first half of this passage. And that point is that Jesus is not bound by ethnicity, physical location, or time. The royal official was no doubt an officer in Herod's service. While Herod wasn't technically a king, he was actually usually referred to as that in a lot of ancient literature. Thus, the official was probably a Gentile in Herod's service. This would mean that so far in the Gospel of John, we have seen Jesus bring the Gospel to a respected Jewish teacher, to an outcast Samaritan woman, and then to an official working for the Roman government. And thus, by implication, from these examples, to everyone in the world. That's right. Christianity is not a religion for one particular ethnicity. It is for everyone all over this world. Jesus is also not limited by physical location. Verse 54 explicitly says that it was a miracle that Jesus did. Yet Jesus was a day's journey away from the boy he miraculously healed. So Jesus' power is able to save from death even at a great distance. And while it is not explicitly in this passage, I think it's also fair to draw out the point that Jesus is not bound by time. Now, this is a pet topic of mine. In fact, the title of my Bible college thesis was A Matter of Time, a Biblical, Historical, Theological Evaluation of the Doctrine of Divine Eternity. Bit of a mouthful, I know. In this season, We've been running youth on pre-recorded videos. We worship via pre-recorded songs. And in case you haven't realised yet, even this sermon is pre-recorded. But it is the height of arrogance to therefore assume that Jesus cannot powerfully work through these mediums whenever they were prepared. He wrote his word thousands of years ago, and yet it perfectly speaks into our situation today. So why couldn't the same be true for a sermon recorded a week ago? or a song recorded a month or even a year ago. Now, I know, I know, I also prefer things that are live. But let this be a challenge to anyone who would limit God to only working in the here and now, and not across all of time. Now, we're actually going to move into the second half of the passage, which begins with the phrase, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. The festival is not named, and thus the timing of this miracle is indefinite. It could be at any point after he healed the royal official's son. Which got me thinking, if the second half of our passage occurs an indefinite period of time after the first half of our passage, why don't I make the second half of this sermon occur an indefinite period of time after the first half? So here is our halftime break. Go grab some food, have a quick toilet break, and if you're one of our youth, keep your eyes glued to the slider, because here's Austin with your chance to win another pizza. Hi church, I've been asked to show you guys what games look like for us um, in this weird live stream format on a Friday night. Uh, so for all the youth who are out there watching, jump onto slido.com. The code you are wanting is NBC Youth. NBC Youth. So jump onto that. For everyone else watching, uh, Slido is just an online platform where we're able to engage and um, really connect through games. Um, but let me just quickly explain the game and why you'll want to play. Whoever wins this game, and there will only be one winner, 
We'll have a pizza sent to them from Lachlan, our youth pastor. Thank you, Lachlan. Um, so this is why you want to play big, big prizes at stake. So the simple game we're playing tonight is scissors, paper, rock. It's you guys versus me. Alright, so if you're on Slido, jump into the poll section and you, just, you should see that you get the option to either pick scissors, paper or rock, right? Simple. If you pick the, uh, the symbol that beats what I show, you get to stay in for the next round. Now unfortunately with this awkward pre-recording live stream situation, um, I'm not actually going to know who wins or how many rounds we need to play. Mathematically, there should be one person left by about round five. So in that case, I'm just going to play six rounds. At the end of this, whoever is the winner, go back to the stream, um, type in your name, your address, your favorite pizza flavor, and Lucky will send you the pizza. Are you guys ready? Round one. Put it in, and let's go. Scissors, paper, rock. So if you guys picked rock, that beats my scissors, you guys get to play on for the next round. Is this a trust game? Yes. Yes, this is a trust game. We are trusting you to be honest right now. Okay, so we should be ready for round two. What am I going to pick? Scissors, paper, rock. Picked rock. That means if you picked paper, you get to stay on for the next round. So sorry for all the people who have been losing at home, missing that chance for the pizza. Round three. Bring it on, guys. Scissors, paper, rock. Sticking with the rock this time. That means if you picked paper, you get to stay in. I wonder how many people are left. We can see it on the stream when this is being played. I can't see it right now. Round four. Scissors, paper, rock. Going with the scissors. If you guys picked rock, you have beaten me. We've got two more rounds left of this. Let's go. Scissors, paper, rock. Of course, I had to do paper, I hadn't done paper yet. So, if you guys picked scissors just then, you have beaten me, you are through to the next round. This is my final round, alright? There should be a winner by now. Last round, make sure you put your picks in. Scissors, paper, rock. Finish with the rock. So, whoever our winner is out there, um, please, it would say you are the, the only one person was playing. <laughs> Go back to the stream, post your name, where you live, and your favorite pizza. Lockie will send you the pizza. Thanks so much, guys. Hope you enjoyed games with you. See ya. Welcome back. Now, if we were to summarize the second half of our passage, we could say that Jesus heals out of empathy, which is a big contrast to him healing in response to faith, which we found in the first half of our passage. Now, we've actually already pointed out that the time period of this part of the passage is indefinite. However, the location is incredibly definite. Here's what verse 2 says. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Now, there have actually been excavations of a double pool in the northeast quarter of Jerusalem, which is thought to be this very pool described here. It is a large two-pool complex excavated near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem and adjacent to the modern church of St. Anne, if you happen to have been to Jerusalem and know where that is. Now, the five colonnades were located one on each of the four sides of the double pool and one across the centre, dividing the two pools. The name Bethesda itself means House of Mercy, a fitting term given the desperate state of the people lying there in hope of a miraculous cure. Now, if you are reading along with the Bible reading, 
with your King James Version, which this is not, you would have noticed that our modern translations do not include verse 4. And you see, the earliest manuscripts do not have this verse, so modern translations rightly do not include it, and it was probably added later by a scribe trying to help the reader understand what was going on at this pool. Since it wasn't included in our Bible reading, let me read it now so that we can get some helpful context for this location. Verse 4 in the King James Version says, An angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now while this verse probably isn't authentically biblical, verse 7 in our passage helps confirm that this is what the people believed. So while the verse isn't original, the ideas are. Now, from our 21st century vantage point, we have no idea whether this belief was totally superstitious or whether God really did send angels to heal people. Whatever the case, the people in this pool complex deeply believed that they could find mercy and healing in the water. As Jesus enters this complex, he centers his attention on a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, invalid in this context probably means paralyzed, lame, or extremely weak. And this man had been in this state for 38 years. That's longer than many people in that time period even lived. Now, unlike the two miracles recorded earlier in this gospel, which Jesus performed in response to a request, this one takes place at Jesus' own initiative. Jesus heals this man out of empathy. But as usual, before he heals someone, Jesus wants to have a conversation. And the conversation Jesus has with this man reveals a major talking point for this section. And that talking point is the man had the desire, but not the means. You see, Jesus asks the seemingly strange question, Do you want to get well? Now, almost all of us, if we were in that situation, would answer yes. However, some people are happy to live in their sins and in their ailments. It reminds me of a scene from Monty Python's Life of Brian, yes I know, very blasphemous, where a man is trying to beg for money because he is an ex-paralytic. When questioned what that meant, he complained that some man had just come along and healed him, and now his livelihood of begging had become much, much harder. However, this is not the case here. The man shows that he lacked not the desire, but the means to be healed. It is the means that he wanted. Without strength and without friends, he couldn't get down to the water when the water was stirred. He had tried, but had not succeeded. Perhaps in this moment the man hoped Jesus would help him into the water. However, he certainly doesn't show that he knows who Jesus is, or any of the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus had performed, and thus doesn't show any faith whatsoever that Jesus could be someone who could heal him. However, Jesus ignores the man's lack of faith. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. The very thing the man was unable to do, Jesus commands him to do. However, with the command came the healing power of God, and the man instantly was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, my uncle was a doctor, and after studying medicine, he used to express his amazement that not only would Jesus heal someone, but he would also give that limb strength. Is one thing for a leg to no longer be broken, 
That's another thing to get the strength back in that leg to now walk. But Jesus does both. We then get to a bit of a weird part of our story, where the man is questioned by the Jews, claims to know nothing, before being encountered by Jesus and told quite a disturbing statement. And this is what he says. See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now, this verse could be deeply troubling to many of us, so let's deal with it directly with our final point of the evening. Yes, final point. We're almost there, everybody. You see, sin will land him in a worse place than any physical ailment. Now, Jerusalem and the temple complex itself is a big place. So the fact that Jesus later found the healed man implies that Jesus sought him out in order to speak to him. Jesus then warns him to stop sinning. But does this mean that the man's suffering or future suffering were a result of sin? Now, if you asked a first century Jew this question, the answer probably would have been yes. His suffering here and now is a result of his sin, which is probably why they were so concerned when they thought he was sinning by just carrying his mat on the Sabbath. However, it should be noted that nothing in the Old Testament specifically bans such an activity. Rather, all it violated was later Jewish traditions that had developed hundreds of detailed and burdensome rules about what kind of work was allowed. And including in this code was the ban on carrying an object from one location to another. But returning now to our question, we have to wonder how we, or probably more importantly, Jesus, would answer our question. Was the man's suffering or future suffering a result of sin? Now, in John 9, 3, Jesus was actually asked a very, very similar question. And here is his answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, this makes it clear that suffering is not always a direct result of a person's sin. So rather than Jesus' warning being strictly physical here, I think it is a spiritual warning. Jesus was warning about a moral lameness, which would be worse than the physical lameness which this man had just been healed from. Further than this, Jesus is warning that the 38 years the man spent as a paralyzed man was no comparison to the doom of hell. Jesus is never interested in just healing a person's body. Far more important is the healing of a person's soul from sin. As we think about Jesus' empathy, we should easily see how that applies to us. Because Romans 5.8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, before we had faith, Jesus had empathy for us and gave us a way out from the worst thing any of us will ever experience eternal separation from God on account of our sins. Now, I find it simply amazing that here in chapter 5, so many chapters removed from the climactic events at the cross, we see Jesus' empathy and desire to see everyone saved from sin. Yes, this could be seen as a rather simplistic application for a sermon, but trusting in Jesus for the saving of our very souls is an essential application 
from the words that we have read in Scripture tonight. So let me end by praying to the Lord who can deliver on that promise. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us, that you would save us while we were still in rebellion before you. I ask that you may allow us to have faith in you and your promises for all our days. So we give you the glory for all the amazing signs and wonders you did perform and will perform. Amen.